0: This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by AstraZeneca's Your Cancer program, which involves interdisciplinary community stakeholders to help redefine cancer care for all patients. Learn more at yourcancer.org. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage.
1: The COVID-19 pandemic presented huge challenges for people living with cancer. From delayed screenings to higher rates of advanced diagnosis to elevated risk for immunocompromised patients, this pandemic has forced people living with cancer and the healthcare workers who care for them to make difficult, life-changing decisions. In this episode, doctors and advocates join Washington Post Live to discuss the impact of the novel coronavirus on cancer and the path forward as the nation continues to navigate its way out of the pandemic. Let's listen.
0: Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Libby Casey, politics and accountability anchor at the Washington Post. This program is part of our Chasing Cancer series. And today we're talking about the impact the coronavirus pandemic has had on cancer patients and the healthcare workers who care for them. In a little while, we'll talk with Howard University President Wayne Frederick. But first I want to introduce Meg Kinard. She's a politics reporter for the Associated Press and a cancer awareness advocate. Meg, welcome. Hi Libby, it's so good to be with you. Yeah, it's great to see you. I, I wanna talk about your journey and how you're doing, but let's start at the beginning. You were diagnosed with breast cancer in February of this year, but you found a lump in your breast four years ago. What did the doctors tell you at that time and
1: how did it get diagnosed properly this year? Four years ago, I was only 37 and I wasn't quite to that 40-year age mark that we hear is when women should really become aware of mammograms and start getting tested regularly. But I felt something very small in my left breast, and I requested a mammogram, received it, and was told that I had a calcification, a small calcium deposit that was something we would monitor every six months, every 12 months, but that it was something that I shouldn't worry about. I kept going for those follow-up treatments, and, again, was told, "Don't worry, this is fine, this could be hormonal. it'll go away on its own." It never did, and became, it became painful, and my skin became bumpy and red. I was still told by my doctors at home, "Don't worry, we're keeping a close eye on this." Finally, this past February, one of those doctors decided, "You know, we've watched this for long enough and I finally did a biopsy on that area. It came back malignant. And at that time, I was diagnosed with invasive ductal carcinoma, which is a very common kind of breast cancer. I was told this is a very typical case, and this is no problem and very unusual, very not unusual. Um, But, you know, something in me, I was glad to finally get diagnosed since I'd been worried that something was going on. But something in me still kind of wondered, you know, this, I saw this happening a long time ago. Is this really it? I got on the the start of the treatment path uh, at home in South Carolina. I did all the tests that come along with the diagnosis. I started chemo um, on an accelerated timeline, pretty much thanks to having a friend in the hospital system where I was, who was able to help me get all of the preliminary stuff done very quickly. But at the urging of my friends and family, primarily my husband, I sought a second opinion just to make sure, just to know, you know, this really is the standard typical cancer case that I had been told it was. I ended up in March coming here to Houston, Texas to seek a second opinion at MD Anderson Cancer Center at the University of Texas. And at that point, only in March of this year, was my diagnosis made correctly. It wasn't a very typical kind of breast cancer at all. It was inflammatory breast cancer, which is among the rarest, most aggressive forms of the disease. And quite frankly, is perhaps something that my doctors at home had never encountered and hadn't seen much of. And so they didn't know it when it became apparent it was right in front of them. But thanks to that urging, thanks to seeking that second opinion, I came here to MD Anderson. I'm actually speaking to you now in between radiation treatments. I'll go back this afternoon for the second in my twice daily regimen. Um, But since March, I've come here to be treated. And I feel that now I'm on the, the right path with the right diagnosis and very aggressive treatment. You know, it's, it's
0: incredible that you got that second opinion and, in fact, that you're even so persistent, Meg, in, in just keeping up with medical professionals about that original pebble that you found. What, what has it been about the people in your life who were urging you to get that second opinion? What was driving them? Like, what What advice can we all learn from you about when you have to keep asking questions?
1: I'm very grateful for those folks, particularly my husband, Jeffrey, for encouraging me to make sure, you know, I have, thankfully, have the ability to come to a place like MD Anderson. Um, I have a, a flexible employer, the Associated Press, who's been very supportive of me in doing my job, even more remotely than we all had been for the past year and a half, doing my job here from Texas. But, you know, I think that given how long that we had been concerned, that I had been concerned about what I was feeling in my body and still being told by medical professionals that that we trusted that, that have still managed aspects of my care under the guidance of MD Anderson physicians over the past couple of months. But still having had that long lag time from when we first became concerned to when the diagnosis actually happened, given that circumstance, it. Ultimately, in retrospect, now seems like it was a no-brainer to at least seek out another piece of advice, another opinion. I initially came here hoping and thinking, like many do when they seek a second opinion, that this would be an affirmation of my previous diagnosis, that this would be, okay, well, you've already received this information about your diagnosis, and here at the most prestigious and best cancer center in the United States, we agree with what your doctors are already saying. So, you know, go forth, you have our blessing. Everything is in line with what you've already been told. That's what I was hoping for. And that's what people come to places like MD Anderson, hoping to hear. And unfortunately for me, and about 50% of people who do seek that second opinion, that's not what I heard. That was very difficult, And it was difficult for me, for my husband, for our whole family. Um, But thank goodness that we were able to do that because it turns out the treatment protocols for that rare aggressive cancer that I do have for inflammatory breast cancer are very different than they are for the standard type of cancer that we thought I had in the beginning. And thank goodness I'm able to do those treatments and do those protocols here at MD Anderson.
0: Meg, that you were fortunate that you have a flexible employer and you have the financial means to get yourself to Houston for that second opinion. So many people are putting off preventative care right now and even taking those initial steps because of financial hits that they've taken during the coronavirus pandemic or fears about entering to medical facilities. How do you deal with this diagnosis and treatment right now in the midst of this pandemic?
1: You're absolutely right that there are so many things that we've put off care-wise and health-wise over the past year and a half because of everything else that's swirling around us. For me, there are multifacets to the difficulty and the, the I guess, the wear and tear mentally that doing all of this in the pandemic really puts on, for one... Hospital systems, when I was diagnosed back in March, February and March, were already dealing with a lot of stresses from the pandemic. Um, And so just entering into a very active participant into the healthcare system at that point, uh, when all of that was already going on, that was just kind of an underlying theme to everything. But put on top of that, these are the first trips that we've taken since the pandemic began early last year. The first time I'm getting on an airplane is not only during the pandemic, but while I've got cancer and also going to get a second opinion. All of those things at once are kind of a lot. Also put with that, going to appointments alone. Yes, my husband came to Houston with me just about every time that I've come for follow-ups and certainly for that first trip, but he couldn't come into the facility with me. He was there on FaceTime, but when I got that news of That standard cancer you thought you had? Nope, that's not at all it. You have this other far more severe case. I was still physically alone without my caregiver, without my support system. And so at that point we were staying in an apartment about a mile from the clinic, and I made that walk back, I'll never forget it. Crying, wondering what all of this would mean for me, for my family, and I made that walk alone. And, Just the mental wear and tear that that put on me and on him not being able to be there for me, that was another difficulty. The last piece of that that I think kind of rounds out the mental health stresses that I've been experiencing and I'm sure thousands of other patients are as well. When I had my surgery last month here at MD Anderson, it was very complex, it was very, very complicated, and it was very, very long it went about 12 hours all told, so long that my husband who had been able to come to be with me to see me off into the OR, had to leave the hospital because due to coronavirus restrictions, which absolutely are understandable in healthcare institutions and we respect them very much, but due to those restrictions, he had to leave. And so when I did wake up from surgery, when I came out of anesthesia, I was alone. Yes, there's plenty of healthcare providers there, but my support system, you know, the, the person who's with me on this journey just as much as I am, wasn't allowed to be there. And that wasn't necessarily stressful for me as much as it was for him. And when we finally had that phone call, when I came out of anesthesia and we were able to connect, the first words out of his mouth were, I want you to know I only left because I had to because they physically made me leave. I didn't want to leave you there by yourself. All of these things are just small pieces of what it's like to go through something like this during the pandemic. Obviously, we need to be careful, and the restrictions are there for a reason, but it's just one more part of it that makes it difficult.
0: And despite that isolation, you've shared your story. You've You sort of burst through that pandemic bubble we're all in by being very open about your experiences. You shared them on Twitter with followers. You're doing interviews with people like us, and you're keeping a journal. Why is it important for you to document and share
1: your story with all of us? There are many pieces to it, one of which is it's cathartic to me. I feel like it helps me as a writer to be able to chronicle Um, a lot of what I'm feeling and experiencing, some of it privately, um, but some of it with others. But more so than that, it is so, there's a huge piece of me that's been so impressed by the outpouring, not just of support for me that I get, but the feedback I get from people who are thanking me when I do post something publicly or say something about what I'm going through, because they're experiencing it too. And in large part, due to the isolation that so many of us feel during the pandemic, they've been enduring it alone. There are several women with whom I've connected who've been diagnosed over the past year and a half and feel that for whatever reason, they don't have a strong support system with them. They're going to chemo and they're going alone and they're worried and they're confused about whatever side effects they're feeling. Is that something normal? And They're asking their doctors and their healthcare providers, but we all know whenever there's a difficulty that we experience, if we really want to know what it's like to make it through or to get advice from someone, we go to somebody who's had that same experience, not just an expert in the field. No shame on the experts. Obviously, we respect them very much, but to talk to somebody who's actually been through chemo or who's lost her hair Or who's having radiation and wondering, you know, is this what my skin's supposed to feel like? Those kinds of people who have really surfaced and just said, you know what, thank you, because I've had these issues too, and I don't feel like I'm so alone. And so, you know, it's it's tough for me as a reporter to tell anybody's story to tell my own story, right? Like we're accustomed to talking to other people and to get their information and to convey that and to elevate that for our audience. For me, this has been flipping the script and talking about myself, which is strange. (laughs) But I've basically pushed through that and and tried to get more comfortable with that because I have heard from those folks who really say, you know, thanks, it it helps to know that there's somebody else out there who's going through this and who's not afraid to talk about it. And that right there, it. comforts me. And it actually ends up bringing me a lot of solace in knowing that, you know, if I can help somebody else um, who's maybe feeling more alone than I am, I'm very fortunate and blessed. But if I can, you know, convey that to somebody else, then that makes it all worth it.
0: Your openness is also inspiring people to do preventative care or do self-exams. And so it's having influence in that way as well.
1: I have heard from a number of women, many of whom I don't know, and some of my own personal friends who particularly, in part, due again to the pandemic, had put off some of those personal care decisions and mammograms and follow-up screenings for a variety of things just because stuff gets pushed aside or got canceled last year. And I've heard from them to say, thanks for the reminder. I've gone and I've scheduled it. And Unfortunately or fortunately, regardless of of really how you want to think about it, I've had several friends come to me and say that they had gone to get that screening, thanks to the constant badgering, I guess, that I do on social media. Um, They'd gone to get that screening, and several of them have actually been diagnosed with breast cancer, and two, have undergone surgery and are in the next processes of their treatment, radiation and other things. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I don't take credit for them having gotten diagnosed with breast cancer, but I am really thankful to see some of that advocacy already playing out in real time. It's awful for anyone to be diagnosed with something like this, and I certainly wouldn't wish it on anyone, but I am very, very glad to see women I know. And hopefully out there, maybe there are some that I'm not aware of who have been able to say, you know what? It is time. It's well past time for me to go and get that mammogram. It's not fun. It's not comfortable. It's not something that we all look forward to. But what we should look forward to is the knowledge that comes thereafter of either, okay, you're all clear and we're confident there's nothing going on, or maybe there is something that we need to take a second look at. I would say in addition to that, though, I got mammograms that were deemed okay for 4 years until all of a sudden I didn't. So I'm not saying that, you know, everyone like no one should trust when they get a mammogram or anything from a doctor. I'm not trying to inspire distrust in doctors. I'm the child of two doctors and I'm very proud of of the careers that they had. But I do hope that I can encourage people to at least have a healthy dose of skepticism when it comes to the screening tests that they do get, if they do, if the patient themselves feels that there's something else going on. Uh, I do, looking back on my own experience, there are pieces of that where if I had spoken up a little bit more loudly or a little earlier, maybe there would have been a different outcome for me. So the biggest thing that I want in any of this is to perhaps inspire that next woman who really thinks that there's something funny going on, to ask that next question a little bit earlier, and hopefully she won't end up on the same path that I have.
0: Well, you are continuing to report for the Associated Press. Um, You post uh, videos and images of yourself exercising. Um, You're a mom of three active kids. There can be a real tendency during this pandemic period to just sort of hunker down and isolate for all of us. So how are you staying motivated, Meg? How are you staying inspired and sort of not trapped, you know, both by your diagnosis as well as literally
1: trapped by the pandemic? Well, you hit on it right there and it's my three active kids. Um, Jeffrey and I have three children, Alex, Hannah, and Adair, and they range in age from 10 up to 17. So, they're very, very busy and they've got a lot going on. And they are my biggest motivators because if there's anything that I want to see on the other side of all of this, it's watching my kids grow up and it is enjoying the rest of life and hopefully um, a very early retirement with my husband so we can really enjoy everything. But you're right, being active has to be a huge part of that, at least to me, because I see physical activity. And health and nutrition going hand in hand with the medical treatments that I'm getting. And so, you know, one of the things that was tough in the beginning of the pandemic, if we go even like a year ahead of when I was diagnosed, gyms were shut down and, you know, physical fitness places weren't deemed to be safe to operate. And so that, for me, as someone who's used to working out and getting a lot of exercise, that was kind of a weird feeling because I didn't have that place that I was accustomed to going to. Um, when I got diagnosed, I really had to make sure that I found a place to be physically active um, because when I was really trying to, to kickstart you know, my body and make sure that it was the best possible vessel for chemotherapy before I had surgery, because I wasn't sure if my tumor had shrunk enough, if I could even get there, um, I asked MD Anderson to put me in touch with their nutritionists. And one of the things that they really talked me through was making sure that everything I was putting in my body was a really, really good thing, a cancer fighting thing, but also kind of clearing pathways. So the rest of my chemotherapy could be most efficacious, um, but also staying physically fit, being active, getting that cardiovascular exercise, doing muscle building because cancer hates all of that. And I think for me, I really had to make sure that I was doing as much as I possibly could in those ways than to allow the medicine to do its its best job. So again, going back to my kids, they're my primary motivator, but I also didn't want to just think, okay, well now I'm here for the medicine and the medicine is just going to do its job. To me that wasn't good enough because what if the medicine, what if my cancer was just being too mean and nasty and the medicine didn't have a clear path to it? So I had to do everything I could to really focus in and make sure that I could be the best possible place for the chemo to be effective and to do its job. And, and thankfully it did, and it, that worked for me. So that would be another piece of advice that I had for anybody going through this process is to take the best possible physical care of themselves and then they're the best place for the medicine to work.
0: Well, Meg, thank you so much. It's just a joy to talk with you. A former Washington Post intern, might I add. So uh, it's great to see all that you're doing. (laughs) Um, Thank you (laughs) so much. Meg Kennard, thanks for sharing your story.
1: Wonderful, Libby, it was great to be with you.
0: Please stay with us. I'll be back in a moment with Howard University President, Dr. Wayne Frederick. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
2: My name is Omar Perez and I am the head of medical diagnostics, U.S. medical affairs at AstraZeneca. I am thrilled to be here today as part of AstraZeneca's Your Cancer program. We believe that redefining cancer care for patients requires going beyond just our medicines and involves close collaboration with the broader cancer community to pursue our shared goal of one day eliminating cancer as a cause of death. We know this year marks 50 years since the passing of the National Cancer Act, a historic milestone that gives us an opportunity to reflect on the incredible advances that have revolutionized cancer care while also charting a path forward for the next 50 years of cancer care amid the COVID-19 pandemic. While at the same time, building upon the conversations we started at our last Chasing Cancer Summit held in June of this year. Continuing this momentum starts with understanding the ways in which the COVID pandemic has reshaped cancer care And the continued importance of detecting and treating cancer earlier by expanding access to cancer screening and biomarker tests that allow us to treat cancer with greater precision by tailoring treatments to a patient's genetic profile. Furthermore, we must acknowledge the long standing barriers many Americans face, particularly among those living with or affected by lung cancer, which continues to be the leading cause of cancer death among both men and women, and which continues to disproportionately impact those from underserved patient communities in terms of diminished quality of life and survival. Today, we're thrilled to spotlight one of the organizations at the very forefront of cancer care. I am pleased to be joined today by Andrea Ferris, President and CEO of the Longevity Foundation, one of the nation's leading cancer advocacy organizations focused on improving outcomes for people affected by lung cancer. Welcome Andrea.
3: Thank you, Omar. Thank you for having us.
2: Absolutely. Um, as we reflect on the impacts of COVID-19, in what ways do you feel those living with cancer have been affected, and what can we learn for the future?
3: Wow, that's a, that's a big question. I think that there are a lot of things, both uh, in terms of the impact that it's had as well as what we can learn. You know, many people affected or impacted by lung cancer already feel a tremendous sense of isolation and distress, and uh, the COVID pandemic compounded that. You know, it was a disease obviously that affects your lungs so that on top of your lung cancer creates sort of a double impact if you will. Um, So I think it has impacted the community from an emotional level. Um, I think it also has impacted the community from a cancer care uh, level as well in that many people weren't going for lung cancer screens. Um, In many uh, communities, a lung cancer screen was considered a, Um, an optional uh, procedure, if you will. And so they were delaying their screenings. Many people were fearful of going in for a screen. So I think we're going to see that impact probably in five or 10 years down the road of all of these delayed cancer screenings, lung cancer being one of them. I think also in terms of accessing care, people weren't going into the hospitals, they weren't going to see their doctors uh, to get the care that they needed as well. So I think that the impact of the pandemic has really um, touched the community very strongly. But on the flip side is, it also uh, gave us opportunities to learn. How do we connect differently? How do we um, interact differently? How do we deliver care differently? So I think that all of these questions that came up out of necessity and were resolved out of necessity actually were really good learnings. And I think there's still a lot more that we need to learn And can incorporate into how we care for people diagnosed with lung cancer and other diseases also.
2: Incredible perspectives. Now, do you think um, with those learnings that we have also learned a little bit about um, the access to healthcare during this time that affected populations differently? And if so, um, how are ways that we can come together as an oncology community to help address those?
3: Yeah, and and I'd love to get your thoughts on it as well. But, you know, I think that what the COVID pandemic did is it really shone a light on healthcare disparities, starting with COVID and the pandemic and how it was impacting uh, different communities uh, more adversely than others. But that carries over into pretty much any disease. Lung cancer absolutely is affected by these disparities. And I do think that we all have to come together to try to address it. There's not a one-size-fits-all solution. Telehealth, while it helps in some circumstances, in others, it it can create a barrier for people who are not technologically savvy or don't have access to Wi-Fi. Um, It also highlights the fact that um, people learn differently. We have to provide education and information differently. The website is great, but some people like paper. Some people learn orally or through video. And so I think that we need to meet people where they are and the pandemic, what it did is it really shone a light on how important it is to start addressing these. And I think it started a really important dialogue as well over the past 18 months um, of just how we do that and you know how we work together, how we work with industry, how we work with local partners, how we work with regulators and providers. Um, I think it's important that we all have a role to play and that we all work together in a coordinated way to address things. But I'd love to get your thoughts on it, on how you how how AstraZeneca is working with it.
2: Yeah, I would agree with you. I think the pandemic has really shown to us uh, the different avenues of way, not just to access healthcare, but how to really reach patients and learning about the different populations of how they go about um, becoming aware uh, of uh, new medical treatments, but also maintaining their current healthcare by continuing their, their cancer screenings. And as well um, have the knowledge and ability to access biomarker testing when it's appropriate. And so I think, although the pandemic, um, as difficult as it has been, has shed some light on these new opportunities. We're embracing digital innovation um, or other ways to reach communities that have not had access um, to the information in our hand, um, and hopefully pave the way for new innovative ways of delivering healthcare. Yeah. Now no you yeah. Thank you. Um, you mentioned. Uh, quite a bit about collaboration, and we also believe collaboration is key to the fundamentally changing and bringing about benefit to patients. How is Longevity partnering with the cancer community to really help address some of the issues we just touched on today, particularly about earlier diagnosing and access to biomarker testing?
3: Yeah, I think that's hugely important, and we have a number of projects and initiatives ongoing where we um, are partnering, with uh, other organizations. We have one specifically focused on uh, learning about biomarker testing in underserved populations, both how it's being delivered, but also how people are accessing information about it. We're doing the, in, the study and the intervention from the patient side of things, and we're partnering with another organization, uh, ACCC, the Association of Community Cancer Centers, to look at the provider side. So then that way, I think it's a holistic approach Uh, as one possible solution. We also partner with a lot of local community uh, organizations that are in the communities that we're trying to serve because they are trusted partners uh, to understand what additional information they need or that we could provide to help them to then educate the people in their communities. Uh, We also partner with hospitals, hospital systems, with um, regulators, with industry partners as well, because as you rightly said, is it takes all of us together to address uh, healthcare disparities and how people are accessing it. I think the other thing that you had mentioned was screening as well. And for lung cancer screening, while it, you know, there's a very defined population who is eligible for the screening, even within that, there's a very low uptake in it. And we all need to work together to try to explain and to make people understand that screening can save your life it's not a death sentence, lung cancer is not a death sentence anymore with all the advancements that are happening. And it's hugely important to find it early, if possible.
2: Agree, and AstraZeneca uh, collaborating with not just the oncology community centers, but also through um, our advocacy channels, as well as through our educational channels is definitely of importance. Yeah. So as we reflect on the progress of the last 50 years following the National Cancer Act being signed into law, and identifying areas where we still need to address to increase access to the latest targeted therapies that have helped revolutionize cancer treatment for patients living with this devastating disease. I am encouraged that we are making progress towards our vision of redefining cancer care and improving survivability for all patients, even amid the COVID-19 pandemic. To learn more about AstraZeneca's commitment to catalyze change alongside the oncology community, please visit yourcancer.org. Thank you to the Washington Post for hosting this timely forum and to Andrea Ferris for the enlightening discussion we had today.
3: Thank you for having me and giving us the opportunity to have this conversation.
2: Absolutely. The work that she and the Longevity Foundation do to improve the quality of life for people affected by lung cancer is tremendous. And now I'll turn it back over to the Washington Post.
0: And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back, I'm Libby Casey. My next guest is Dr. Wayne Frederick, president of Howard University. He also serves as the distinguished Charles R. Drew Professor of Surgery and as a practicing surgeon. Dr. Frederick, welcome to Washington Post Live.
4: Uh, Thanks for having me.
0: The director of the National Cancer Institute, Ned Sharpless, came on this program back in June and said that there has been a 95% decrease in cancer screenings across the board since the pandemic started, and that the impact on cancer care is even worse than the institute had predicted it could be. So what has been the impact on your patients? What are you seeing?
4: Yeah, you know, we're seeing something similar at Howard University Hospital where the majority of our patients are African American. Uh, we, We have seen a significant decrease in screening mammographies, and especially if you look at uh, the three-month period between uh, June and September of 2021, and you try to compare that to June uh, of 2019 to September of 2019, you would expect to see an increase because during 2020 we had such a decrease that women who would have missed their annual mammograms, you would expect them to be coming back. Plus, women who are now getting into that age group, you would be trying to capture them. So you really should be expecting an increase. And instead, we're still seeing a significant decrease. So it's consistent um, with what NCI is seeing, and I think it's gonna have a significant impact on cancer care and cancer outcomes.
0: Do do you have suggested solutions or answers to how uh, more people can be motivated to get those screenings and get that attention that could be preventative?
4: Yeah, you know, I think we have to be innovative. Part of it is we have to bring, I think, some of these screenings to patients. So for instance, in colorectal cancer, you have the opportunity to do a fecal test in which people can collect some of their stool, mail it in, and that could be an initial screening tool. Um, We have um, mammography units that are part of mobile bands. I think taking those out into communities and meeting patients where they are. Uh, The fear and concern about coming into hospitals uh, with COVID is a substantial one, and so we want to get patients out there um, doing screenings for prostate cancer. While we know that PSA without a digital rectal exam is is an imprecise modality, um, at least in the interim, we need to um, be using some of these. So I think we have to get innovative about how do we bring these tests and these screenings out Uh, to patients. We have to encourage things like self um, breast examinations as as an example. So we really need to be getting the word out that these screenings are down and what people can do on their own to increase their chance of detection.
0: Well, before the pandemic, cancer mortality rates were at an all-time low in the United States. Do you have a sense of how these delayed screenings and care could impact the mortality rates for cancer looking, let's say, five years ahead?
4: You know, some of um, the national organizations that look at these um, data sets are predicting as many as ten thousand uh, cancer cancer deaths as a result of these delayed screenings. I can tell you already what I'm seeing in my patients are patients that are showing up with much more advanced disease because they've delayed and hesitated going to the doctor uh, to check on something that just wasn't right. And again, uh, that that need and fear and also um, what we have put out as a medical community, trying to keep people away um, from our hospitals, especially because of the strain it has put um, on the healthcare system, has kept uh, patients away. And that's unfortunate, because with advanced stage disease, the outcome, unfortunately, is gonna be worse.
0: Well, let's talk about that, that issue, Dr. Frederick. There's this issue of hospitals being so full in some parts of the country where we're seeing these COVID case surges And now, of course, we're seeing unvaccinated patients fill some hospitals. How concerned are you about cancer patients having these life-saving treatments postponed because hospitals are just overextended? So we're not even talking about someone being concerned or wary of going in, we're talking about the hospital saying, we just can't see you right now.
4: Yeah, I'm I'm very concerned actually, because if you think about it, there's a ripple effect. Uh, There's also national data that shows that more people died at home um, during the months of the pandemic in March of 2020 um, up through this past summer, um, than did in the corresponding 12 months, 12 to 15 months. And now that suggests that people were not getting treatments for a wide variety of diseases, which, as you would imagine, would include cancer, heart uh, disease, and um, other types of uh, diseases. In patients with cancer in particular, not getting chemotherapy that's scheduled um, not getting an operation in a timely fashion all of those things can make a significant difference it can take someone with a stage one um, disease that has a much better prognosis all the way to a stage four that has a very poor prognosis and so those are the types of things that will accelerate we also have an aging population as well and as we think about that we are expecting that the incidence of cancer will go up while the treatments are getting better. Um, Cancer being the number one cause of death, uh, overtaking heart disease um, is a reality. And so having a circumstance in which we have gone through a a significant period of time, 18 months and ongoing, where people have delayed getting screened, uh, could prove to be catastrophic.
0: Well, Dr. Frederick, you know hospitals are having to make some very tough decisions right now about how they accommodate cancer patients and other non-COVID emergencies as they cope with these COVID case surges. How does a hospital make decisions? Um, you know, we're seeing some doctors at a breaking point say, "You know, I'm at my wits' end because the people who are coming in are unvaccinated," um, whereas you know we've got people who are suffering from cancer who can't even come in to have a necessary life-saving surgical procedure right now.
4: Yeah, and that's the difficulty of this situation, right? We live in an ecosystem uh, that's interdependent, way more interdependent than I think we are sometimes willing uh, to admit. And that's the unfortunate part of what has taken place with this pandemic. Uh, so that everybody's behavior, while we think of personal choice, it actually does have an impact on others. Um, because if, you choose not to be vaccinated, then there's a series of other things that you must do to avoid getting sick. And, yet, and when you do, if large numbers of people who aren't vaccinated get sick, it does stress the hospital system and making those decisions is tough. You have an emergency room that's overwhelmed. Um, you have hospitals and ICUs that are overwhelmed, ventilators that are being used. And during the pandemic for long periods of time, um, our hospitals decided to delay surgeries. Um, so I had a couple of major cancer operations to do that I waited some six to eight weeks to do. Um now, you know, I'm hopeful that those patients will still have a very good outcome, but there's no predicting what that delay um could lead to. And that's a tough decision to make, you know, for someone who when we know we have a treatment, we have a vaccine, um, it's tough. And it's tough for healthcare workers who are burning the wick as it were in both hands. Um, doing everything possible to keep everyone alive, to also see that the behavior of some is affecting um, others and causing others to have very poor outcomes, including fatalities. And and that's tough, you know, and then on top of that, I think there's a layer of politics associated with it. And in medicine, you know, patients come to the emergency room, all you see is their humanity. And so it's very, very tough uh, to operate and make those decisions.
0: Well, let's go back to preventative care. You wrote an op-ed in February saying that missed preventative care is endangering minority communities in particular, and the pandemic has highlighted and exacerbated longstanding racial disparities in health care. What is at the heart of these inequities?
4: You know, a little bit has to do with, um, I would say we have structural issues within our systems. Um, so the first one is access. Structurally, if you look at the way uh, we're set up, so if you look at certain zip codes, you look at the average income, and then you look at what we have in terms of healthcare resources and stuff around those neighborhoods, you immediately recognize that they are underserved and that even for patients who want to do the right thing, their access is not there. There's not somewhere that's easily accessible for them to go get screened. Um, They're not working in jobs where health insurance comes along with it. All of those things decrease their access uh, to good health care. Layered on top of that um, are the other issues of how do we then ensure that those patients are getting all of the things that can impact their social determinants of health? And that includes transportation, it includes nutrition. So, do they have um, full service groceries, where they can get fresh fruits and vegetables, or to, are, are, are there a preponderance of corner stores uh, that are supplying high sugary drinks, fatty uh, fried foods, etc. And then you look at, uh, you put all of those things together and you begin to realize that it's a much larger ecosystem, much more complicated, uh, that maintains the health of certain individuals um, at a lower rate, as a matter of fact, If you look at the life expectancy of a white male in America to an African-American male, it's the widest gap that you have in life expectancy. That gap began to close slowly, partly because of better care to African-Americans, but also because of a strange phenomenon in which we started to see increasing deaths among white Americans, mainly younger white Americans, related to the opioid crisis and alcoholism and suicides, et cetera. During this pandemic, um, it appears that we may have erased that um, that, that gain, as it were, and that that gap may actually widen because of the disproportionate impact uh, that COVID had. And then, obviously, we don't know what the long-term impacts are um, from COVID itself as a disease. And so we really can be getting into a circumstance where over the next five to 10 years, the outcomes for African-Americans in particular, with respect to health issues, could really deteriorate. Um, And and that's something that I think as a country, as an economy, uh, we're going to have to look at those long-term impacts.
0: Well, you're training the next generation of doctors at Howard University Medical School. And healthcare workers have been pushed to the brink. We were just talking a moment ago about the challenges of dealing with COVID, but of course, they're also dealing with you know, the, the racial disparities that you're talking about as they just start their careers and think about how they're going to help create healthy communities. How are you preparing students to practice medicine in let's hope for a post-COVID era, can we call it, Dr. Frederick, um, even knowing that you know another pandemic may lie ahead in our future?
4: Sure. you know, I I attended medical school at Howard actually from 1990 to 1994. One of the things that impressed me during that and my surgical training was the HIV um, epidemic. Um, I remember looking at the disproportionate impact, not quite understanding it, not quite understanding why so many African Americans seem to be impacted, not understanding all of the structural things around it because that's not what Taught in medical school at that time. Um, We learned about the disease process. I knew what type of virus it was. I knew what we would have to do to take care of patients, the unusual diseases they would present with. But the social determinants of it just wasn't there. And I think that what you see now in medical education is a very strong curriculum that speaks to that issue, especially at Harvard University. We really try to emphasize the you know, young medical students that you have to look at patients holistically. So it's great to tell, you know, a patient that goes home after an operation to make sure they eat healthy, whatever that means. But then to not understand that they live in a zip code where there are only two full service groceries, um, you know, they don't have access to that, um, it's something else. You know, I, I myself took care of a patient when I first came back to Howard who was 40, had breast cancer, five kids, and after her operation I had to get chemo. And the first day she didn't show up, and I called her. And she said, Dr. Frederick, I'm sorry, I had to make a decision today. I'm a wage um, worker. I had to go to work today when I looked at the bills that I have coming, so I could make my chemotherapy appointment. And that's tough. That's not something I learned in medical school. It's something that I think medical students today are learning. And I also think that they're making choices as to where they practice as a result. The altruism they bring to us as they learn about the challenges to that altruism, as it were, I believe that they're going to go out and do um, the right thing and practice in places where they're most needed.
0: Well, you and three other HBCU presidents came together to write an op-ed in the Washington Post last month. And in fact, you are the leaders of the nation's only four historically black medical schools. And here's the headline, for the sake of black people's health, we are mandating COVID-19 vaccines for all our medical students. What led you to that decision to institute that vaccine mandate?
4: You know, as I, I, I saw the data of the disparity between who was being vaccinated and who wasn't. I recognized that we were getting in trouble and getting in trouble very fast. Um, As the vaccine rollout occurred, the groups that lagged significantly were African-Americans, Hispanics, um, Native Americans and Republicans. Those were the four groups that really had a significant lag. And I felt that unless we stepped in I made it clear that we are concerned enough about our own that our students, our faculty, our staff are mandated to be vaccinated because our margin of error is very small and we've lost such a disproportionate number of people already. And as I said before, we don't know what chronic illnesses they're gonna take with them as a result of COVID that we had to do something right then and there. And what you see now is I think the gap has closed with African-Americans, not all the way, but the gap is still there. And there's more to be done. Um, We're gonna continue to push the message out about getting vaccinated. And as I try to tell people I speak to about being vaccinated, I'm not trying to coerce anybody into getting a vaccine, but I want to make myself available to answer any question you may have, because I'm convinced that if you get your questions answered and you get information, you make the right choice and get vaccinated.
0: Well, uh, we do have a question from our audience uh, that has come to us to ask you, Dr. Frederick. Um, This is Sue in Densmore, Ohio. She wants to know, what does the science around mRNA vaccines offer for future cancer treatment?
4: You know, I think there's a lot of um, opportunities and possibilities here. Messenger RNA vaccines have demonstrated that we can fine tune the body's immune system very precisely to attack the particular um, antigen or infect, infectious agent, or possibly even a cancer cell. And I think you, what you will start seeing in our laboratories is an increasing interest in developing vaccines against certain types of cancer cells that could be effective as a result. So I think this really opens up a whole new um, era of exploration that I think can really result in many treatments coming forward um, in, the, in the arena of cancer.
0: Well, that's a hopeful note to end on. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Dr. Wayne Frederick, really appreciate your time today.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: And if you'd like to check out what interviews we have coming up, please head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and to find out more information about all of our upcoming programs. I'm Libby Casey. Thank you for watching. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.